I'm a, an urban native, right? So I didn't grow up on the reservation. I grew up in the city in California. My grandfather is Lakota and Mohawk and moved from Mohawk territory out to California after the Korean War and, uh, and just stayed here and ra- raised his family here. And so I was raised in this like very established colonial community of you know mixed races, mixed identities, mixed cultures. And I had this, you know, traditional, what I would say traditional colonial upbringing for what Thanksgiving was. You know, I would go to school, they talked about this first, you know, feast between the, the Indians and the pilgrims and how wonderful it was. And isn't it just fantastic, this piece that came. And I really just kind of accepted that as a kid. And uh, my parents didn't really teach that at home. It was just something I heard at school. And then as I got older, my brother and I really kind of took a deep dive into our culture. We really wanted to reclaim it. And uh, the more we learned and the more, <laughs> the more we discovered, you know, that what we're taught, obviously, in school is not the full story. It's just this watered-down, made-to-look-pretty version and it's very far from the truth, the angrier I became. That was Corinne Ostrike, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 157. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. We'll be diving into the full episode in a few minutes, but before that, I have three quick things that I want to share with you. The first is the promise that my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. That's it. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. You're great, and we're all just doing the best we can. That's what I believe. The next thing I want to share is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language. And we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and pretty much everything in between. My personal hope is that these conversations make you feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. I think that's super important. And then lastly, the last thing that I want to share before we get to today's episode is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast because these honest conversations are 100% listener funded. They're made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, and feel less alone... I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This kind of tangible financial support, that's what allows me to make the show. And it also pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That's me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all of my guests. And a few months ago, our community met the funding goal to make that happen. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time, with higher rates always being paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. 
I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show for that matter, I guess, Um, but I fully believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world of honest conversations where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Sometimes the live events and retreats actually get sold out within the Patreon community. So if you're interested in that, that is a good place to be. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood. So you can feel good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. If you go over to Patreon, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, that's where we do our live Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. Those are perhaps one of my favorite things uh, that we do in the Patreon community. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Corinne Ostrike. Corinne is a professional journalist who has been writing for powwows.com since 2014. She's Lakota and Mohawk and is an ambassador for the internet campaign, hashtag phenomenal woman and hashtag phenomenally indigenous. Corinne is also the founder of the nonprofit organization, The Buffalo Project, a program that seeks to reduce human trafficking and violence against women by empowering men to embrace healthy emotional behavior through indigenous values. In this episode, Corinne shares her personal story of reclaiming Thanksgiving and reconciling the pain and anger that that holiday has caused her and her family. She talks about healing, about the importance of buying art and clothes directly from Native people instead of, quote, Native-inspired companies, and also about how those of us who are not Indigenous can act in allyship to Native communities. Corinne shares about her experience as a surrogate as well talking about what she's learned, why it feels like a spiritual calling for her, as well as her personal experience with miscarriage. This entire conversation is honest and thoughtful, and it was such a pleasure for me to get to know Corinne. I hope that you enjoy getting to know her just as much. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are rolling. Corinne, welcome to the show. Thank you. Drop me into your real life. How'd you spend the first hour of your day-to-day, hour or two? What'd that look like? (laughs) Well, it took about 10 minutes to get my kids out of bed. And then um, I gave them a bath, started my coffee, and helped get them dressed and brought them to my mom's house so that they would not be loud during this recording. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mom. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, mom. Thanks for being around the block. (laughs) That must be super helpful. It is very helpful. Yeah. We're very, very lucky that way. (laughs) Is that where you grew up or did you relocate to be closer to your mom when you had kids? I grew up in Sunnyvale. That's where I live. And, uh, I've lived, I've moved away and then have come back. My husband was in the Marine Corps, so we've lived kind of all over. (laughs) But 
we've come back here to Sunnyvale and um, have been here for the last seven years. So, Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. I mean, obviously, we're just coming out of the holidays, and I know some people do family stuff, some people don't, and, you know, all across the spectrum. But my... I, I live in Oregon right now, and my parents recently moved from Southern California to Florida. And I think I saw them like once last year. And oh, I'm wow. like, yeah, I would like that to change. But it's it's one of those things where a lot of times people move away and they live far from whether it's their family of origin or a chosen family or any of that. And just kind of stop and think like, hmm, one or two times a year is actually not enough for me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're actually moving to Minnesota uh, in the summer. So I will also be stepping into that, you know less frequent viewing of my mother and family. And so that'll be interesting for sure. After seven years of being so close to just suddenly be a couple states away, it's going to be a big difference. So yeah. Why are you moving? It's too expensive in California, honestly. Our, uh, we have uh, one consistent income, which is my husband's. And then because mine is not um, making any kind of sustainable income yet. And then um it's our rent is just astronomical because <laughs> we live in the Bay Area where it's like Facebook is down the road. LinkedIn is also less than a mile away. Apple, the big Apple buildings are all like a mile away from my house. So everyone wants to be here in tech, right? And so uh, people like my husband, he's a journeyman welder, like we are struggling to to maintain a life out here. So we have to We've kind of reached this point where we're like almost in the red, you know, every month. So we just need to, we need to move somewhere where we can actually save for like our kids' college if they choose to go and and just anything (laughs) because right now it's not happening. Yeah, that's a very real and relatable answer. I'm interested once you started, I guess for lack of a better phrase, city shopping for new places to go, (laughs) other than cost, what was going into the decision for you? How'd you essentially how'd you choose what you chose? Uh, well, my husband is from Minnesota, so he grew up in this very small town called Aitken, and they have like one stoplight, and so it's very different from where we are living right now, which is just impacted with people. He has sacrificed being away from his family for seven years in order for me to be near mine. And now we kind of reached this understanding. I said, you know, you've sacrificed for so long. It's my turn to sacrifice being away from my family so that you can spend time with with your family. Because there are some illnesses in his family. And I think it's really important for him to be near them as much as we can. And um, there's a whole group of aunties and uncles that our kids haven't spent a great deal of time with. So it's really important to us. So that really went into our decision to move back or out to Minnesota. And then the city that we chose is close enough to Minneapolis that I won't feel (laughs) deprived of city life, but also far enough away that my husband won't feel overwhelmed in a big city. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so much of what you just said feels really relatable. And again, just really honest, this idea of compromise in relationships and in families and okay yeah it's been wonderful you know we started this conversation with hey it's so great that your mom's around the corner and can watch the kids while we do this recording and also the flip side of that is oh your partner isn't close to his family right and Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty infrequent now that you know everyone that you know and love lives in the same city (laughs) I think that's pretty it happens but I think it's pretty rare and so these are the kind of conversations of okay it's my turn to compromise or like you said a bit of a sacrifice and the going back and forth and sort of making that decision just that feels very real to me. 
Yeah, definitely. So this might be sort of a superficial place to start, but can we talk about your gorgeous skin for a second? Because (laughs) it's at the time of this recording, the very beginning of 2019, and taking exquisite care of myself is one of my goals this year. And that includes taking care of my skin, which somehow as an adult woman, I just don't do. So please tell me all your secrets. Uh, All my secrets for my skincare? Yeah. Well, I wash my face every night. So like I don't I never fall asleep in makeup never as like with a little asterisk never sometimes I fall asleep in my makeup but usually I just use a bar soap and a washcloth really like I don't use like I had some money invested in uh like Rodan and Fields for a while cuz I was like really bought into this idea of like I really wanted to maintain a good facial skincare routine but it was just it was too much for me as a mom, like to, to follow through because I was like, by the time nighttime came around, I was so exhausted. All I wanted to do was put on my pajamas and crawl into bed. Like my husband, it takes him maybe 45 seconds to get ready for bed. (laughs) Like me, it just takes nowhere near that. So skincare was like really down far on my list of priorities, but uh, yeah, just I just take a bar of soap and a washcloth, kind of like what my mom used to do growing up. That's how she used to go to bed every night, just wash her face with a bar of soap and washcloth and then lotion. So I use like Nivea, um, it's like Nivea facial lotion, and I put that on after I wash my face, and then I just go to bed. Okay. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> no, but I like it, but also consistency, right? I definitely cannot say that I wash my face every night. I feel like I wash my face almost never. Um, which is probably part of the problem unless I'm in the shower. Yeah. I don't know why I have such a hard time with like an evening routine. There's really no, I mean, I'm not a mom. There's no really good excuses for me not to. And yet it feels like this Herculean effort even to floss my teeth. (laughs) And I'm like all these other things I would like to have. I mean, it's, it's not a time shortage. I have 10 minutes to do this. Like I just do. And for some reason, I don't know, I don't do it, but I guess that's a, uh, a conversation you know or a really, for another time. What's really strange is if I'm at a hotel, like if I'm out of town and I'm staying at a hotel, I am like meticulous about I'm going to wash my face and I'm going to brush my teeth before bed because everything is laid out so nice on the like, you know, like the hotel, you know, whatever vanity. And when I'm at home, it's just not that way. But when I'm at a hotel, I'm like, oh, it's time for me to shower and then I'm going to wash my face and do this and that. I just, it doesn't carry into my home routine for whatever reason, usually. I don't know why. (laughs) Yeah. Also, um, the hotels where they have those magnifying mirrors, right? That come off the side. Like I spend so much time just looking at my pores. So close. And I was like, I don't want to see, but I got to look, but I don't want to see, but it's there. (laughs) It's yeah, it's there. And something about the fluffy white towels. And I agree with you. I think that it is, it's like a different mindset. Also, it's like a break from that everyday routine type of situation. True. I am in the process of converting a small van into a camper van that I'm going to be moving into later this year. And so oh, wow! part of my thought of routine too is like, how do you establish routines when you don't really have a traditional home base, right? Because I don't want the yeah. answer to be that taking care of myself like completely goes to shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the fact that yours is simple gives me hope. Oh, good. <laughs> well, ta- I was just thinking about how Hotels are very minimalist, you know, but that like what you're going to be doing is even more so, I think. That's even more minimalistic. So we'll see. Maybe I will have amazing living in a van skin. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe. (laughs) That'll be it. I'll let you know. I will report back. 
So I first found you and your work when you did an Instagram story takeover for Jen Winston of Girl Power Supply. I can put a link to it in the show notes um, during Thanksgiving week. And I would love for you to talk about what you shared in that story takeover. Yeah. Um, so she initially, she contacted us through um, Urban Native Era. And Urban Native Era is um, a company owned by my friend Joy Montoya. And he said, you know, do you want to do this? Because <laughs> he said, I think you're a little, you know, you have more to talk about or whatever. And so I said, yeah, for sure. And uh, and I just decided, you know, she had a couple different topics she really wanted to focus on in the month of November for Native people and um, the various other people were talking about pretty important topics. And then she said, well, what do you think about talking, uh, talking about buying indigenous or buying from indigenous people? And I was really, really down with that because it's this, it's this huge, huge deal. People buying things that are imitation or, oh, look at this pattern at Target. It looks like it's native or whatever. And, and it's, it's really not. And it's, it's, it's a large corporation profiting off of some stolen designs really, or made to look like, right? So I used my, the airspace to really talk about how important it was to support uh, Native American artists, indigenous designers, um, because we're out there, you know, like, and not a lot of people, I think maybe recently we're hearing more about it, right? Like, I think Vogue did, was it Vogue or I think it was Vogue, did a cover on, um, this woman who beads van shoes, like she will hand bead like the skater shoes, you know, like vans. Mm-hmm. And um, I think her name is her in Instagram is see holy bear. So because of things like that, native designers and indigenous people who are creating fashion or whatever are getting more airtime or getting a little more recognition, but it's still not enough. So there's still, you know, shops like this there was this horrible shop called spunky squaw which that in itself is this very racist term for native people squaw is like not a word that we use or are comfortable using and um and this this particular place that i'm referencing was selling clothing that was you know imitation native even like their their jewelry was said to be navajo or it was just horrible. And so that was just this, this example of somebody who is definitely not indigenous profiting off of people looking for indigenous wares, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's what the takeover was really about was just bringing attention to how many the sites out there that are really pulling uh, attention away from actual indigenous designers. And instead here, if you want this these, these clothing that, that have indigenous designs or whatever turn to indigenous artists instead. And, um, I sent some, you know, art places for people to go if they were looking for clothing or for art or for jewelry, you know, so that they could, especially with Christmas coming up and, uh, that way, you know, people could seek actual, you know, representation of indigenous work. Yeah, I remember one of the things that you said during that was, I mean, exactly what you're speaking to, to, the call to action to buy art and clothes by natives, not from native-inspired companies, right? And that really being a difference. Right. 
Yeah. And that's actually, um, that quote is from eighth generation, which is one of the companies I shared. They make blankets and that's kind of their tagline is by, by B U Y right. By inspired natives, not native inspired. And I really love that because it, it really encourages people to support indigenous designers who are inspired and, and, um, yeah, so that really rings true for me, I think. Mm-hmm. So I know you just mentioned a couple of different uh, companies or brands, designers, any other either native artists or native owned brands that you particularly love that folks should check out that I could link to in the show notes? Um, Yeah. Well, one of my favorite artists, one of my favorite artists is he does work on canvas, but he also does work like in performance art. Uh, His name is Greg Deal and uh, he's a very close personal friend of mine. And he was actually in National Geographic for the month of December. They featured a picture of him with like a black outfit for one of the performance pieces he did. But his work is just really amazing. And he uses mixed media. So it's like fo- old photographs, like the old, you know, tin photos of of native people combined in like you can see like the McDonald's sign in the background. So it's like this juxtaposition of the past versus, uh, versus now there's a couple other artists. Keith Sakola is really good. Uh, he does really amazing artwork and there's just so many, uh, natives who are taking art away from what, you know, most, most white people would think of as indigenous art, right? Like the, the hunched over native on the horse, right? With the spear, like the exhausted warrior or whatever is kind of, what you would see in museums as native art. But there's this like movement happening today of native artists who are totally reclaiming what it means to be a native artist and what our stories look like via art. And it's just so cool because it makes it, it's relevant, you know, like, hey, we go to the skate park, you know, um, we go to McDonald's or we do this. And, and it's not just all headdresses and, you know, bone breastplates. Like it's, it's, it's real life. And this is like what, this is our real life. This is us existing in today. So there's a lot of really good artists. Yeah. Yeah. What you're speaking to this idea of that, not forcing anyone to, I don't know, like only make a certain type of art or tell a certain type of story, right. That is like, there are these really tight boxes that, I don't know, traditionally folks are allowed to speak about or talk about and what you said, like all of the artists and, you know, creators of different types that are expanding that of, hey, it's actually not just headdresses, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, there's a lot of museums that or art institutions who are not interested in hosting some of this new art because it's, it doesn't tell the narrative that they want. I know that that's been kind of an issue with some of the artists that I know who have this new artwork that maybe it's a little uncomfortable for for people to look at because it tells a truth and it's not the truth that they grew up knowing so yeah it's just it's very interesting and it's it's it, social media has kind of given those artists a larger uh, access to audience right mm-hmm. whereas a museum or or an art studio who's like eh, that doesn't really fit what we want would be limiting yeah so on this topic of the 
I don't even know if juxtaposition is the right word, but the contradiction between, you know, the story that's been told or the story that, uh, I don't know, like you just said, like this, these museums are looking for a certain story, right? And this new thing doesn't fit with that or this other thing doesn't fit with that. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Huffington Post piece that you wrote about Thanksgiving? Because I feel like that oh, yeah. sort of fits into that similar space. Yeah. So the piece I wrote for Huffington Post was about uh, about Thanksgiving. And uh, they really, they, they wanted me to write about kind of um, my own personal story, my own personal experience with Thanksgiving. And I'm kind of, I think that, I, well, I thought I was unique <laughs> in this approach to Thanksgiving or how I felt about it. But after the article came out, I got a lot of emails and messages from people telling me that they related to it. So maybe it's not as unique as I think. But um, I grew up, I'm a, an urban native, right? So I didn't grow up on the reservation. I grew up in the city in California. My grandfather is Lakota and Mohawk and moved from Mohawk territory out to California after the Korean War and, uh, and just stayed here and ra- raised his family here. And so I was raised in this like very established colonial community of, you know, mixed races, mixed identities, mixed cultures. And I had this, you know, traditional, what I would say traditional colonial upbringing for what Thanksgiving was. You know, I would go to school, they talked about this first, you know, feast between the the Indians and the pilgrims and how wonderful it was. And isn't it just fantastic, this piece that came and I really just kind of accepted that as a kid. And uh, my parents didn't really teach that at home. It was just something I heard at school. And then as I got older, my brother and I really kind of took a deep dive into our culture. We really wanted to reclaim it. And uh, the more we learned and the more <laughs> the more we discovered, you know, that what we're taught, obviously, in school is not the full story it's just this watered down, made to look pretty version. And it's very far from the truth. The angrier I became. So I got really bitter about Thanksgiving. And then like to the point where I was like, I didn't even want to celebrate it. And I felt guilty eating turkey on Thanksgiving. I just was not feeling it. And then uh, in the article, I talked about how I went to this wiping of the tears ceremony powwow. And which is a, it's a, it's a ceremony that's done for veterans, native veterans who have PTSD or other trauma. And you go to this wiping of the tears ceremony and it's led by an elder. And, uh, this particular one was led by Richard Charging Eagle. And, uh, he basically, you wipe away your, your, you, you wipe away the tears of, of the trauma and it's, it helps you to heal. It helps you to overcome your your, your trauma or your PTSD issues. And it's, it's very healing. It's a healing ceremony. Anyway, I was there and, uh, I expressed some of this anger I was having to this elder that was there. And I said, you know, I'm feeling really guilty about this holiday and I'm, and I'm feeling really angry. And the, the elder kind of turned to me, she was sitting in a wheelchair and she said, you know, you can, you can choose how you feel about this day, but it is a choice. You can either let the holiday claim you or you can choose to reclaim it. And, oh man, those words really hit me. You know, like I was like, 
can I even do that? Like, is it even possible for me to reclaim this holiday? Isn't that, you know, dishonoring to my ancestors who died because of this supposed feast or whatever, or opening their trust? And and then I thought, you know, well, maybe it's it's a dishonor to them to hold on to that anger for so long. Maybe they just want me to live. Hmm. You know, maybe they don't want me to be angry anymore. And that's maybe hurting all of their sacrifices by living in anger. And so it was that was really this conversation was the catalyst to totally shifting how I felt about Thanksgiving. And I found there is, you know, I write about this in the article. There's there's this ceremony that happens at Alcatraz every year in San Francisco. And uh, it's called the Sunrise Ceremony. And it's organized by the Muakma Ohlone people. And it's all the dancing and everything is very ceremoniously Moakma Ohlone. But everyone is welcome to come so long as you're respectful. There's no phones allowed, no recording devices. And and you go and it's this, you know, this bonfire. And it's it's about reclaiming the holiday. So I decided to go to that coming Thanksgiving, which was not this Thanksgiving, but the previous. And while I was there... The sun, it was really dark. It was pitch black, and the, except for the bonfire. And then eventually the sun rises, and we're asked to raise our hands to the sun and let it bathe us and, and to, uh, to, to bring healing and to bring strength uh, for the day to reclaim it. And this is not a huge point in the story, but I happened to have been standing next to uh, Colin Kaepernick, who was there with some friends of his and his girlfriend for the ceremony just to observe. He didn't want to be involved or a part of it at all. He just wanted to be there. And through various instances, there was an elder who came by and gave him like some sage in his hand and tobacco. And he's just holding it there with his hand out, looking really awkward. So I said, I leaned over and I said, put it in your pocket. And he said, oh, okay. All right. And he put it in his pocket. And then the next time someone came over to give him something and he looks at me like, what do I do? And so it kind of developed into this, you know, something happens and then I'm informing him what's going on. And it's just like this impromptu, like cultural advisor kind of thing. And uh, people saw me talking with him and asked, you know, let's let's do this. Take him over here or whatever, because a lot of people were crowding him. And we had uh, some time to be alone, just the two of us walking. And he said, you know, how do you handle Thanksgiving? How do you how do you deal with this day? Like, what, what do you feel? What, what is, what is the right way I should feel or whatever? And I said, the words of the elder came back to me at that moment. And I said, you know, you can choose how you feel about this holiday, but it is a choice. It is your choice. You can let the holiday claim you, or you can choose to reclaim it. And it really just full circled for me in that moment. Like (laughs) here, here I am giving this this young man, the advice that was given to me. And, uh, it's just, you know, it's giving advice when it's still new for myself, but I'm in giving it to someone else almost like ingrains it a little further in me, almost makes it a little more part of me. So yeah, I wrote about all of that for my article and, uh, it did really well on, it was released on Thanksgiving day this year. And, uh, it was really neat to see how many people that 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 sentiment of reclaiming your emotions, reclaiming that day kind of just hit other people besides natives. Like you didn't have to be native upset on Thanksgiving to feel that way. You could have been 
you know, any background and could identify in some way with that, you know, that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to hear you share a little bit more about what that reclamation looks like for you, because I feel like that's one of those words or sentiments that we sort of collectively know what it means. Like, right, right, I'm choosing how I feel about this. I'm reclaiming this. But I think sometimes there can be a disconnect between you hear that, whether it's advice or you're deciding to do that versus what is it actually, like, what has it looked like for you to do yeah. that? Because I would assume, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume it isn't just a light switch thing of like, okay, I've just decided to feel differently. And so therefore I have no more pain or trauma about this. So right, right. Um, can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. So, uh, when I, and I mentioned earlier reclaiming our culture also, so I'll just go into that a little also. So language is a huge part of it. So my brother and I have been learning, uh, Lakota, but then we are also trying to learn Mohawk, which are two completely different cultures. The languages are totally different. Don't sound similar at all. There's not even like a, a base similarity that I can be like, Oh, well, I know what this word is. So it must mean this. So for us, a lot, a large part of that reclamation is learning our language, because if you can grasp and learn and know your language, then a lot of the other traditions and ceremonies have deeper meaning because you understand a little more about it. So like, I don't know, in, I know in Lakota, there's so many words for clouds, right? You can't, you don't just say clouds, right? You say all these different words. So because of that, you have this more in-depth feel and understanding of the world around you when you have a grasp on the language. So for Thanksgiving, we really go out of our way to like, I'll sing to my children in our language, or I'll read to them some traditional uh, stories like Aya the Giant or, you know, um, various other stories that we know or have have recently reclaimed or learned and made a part of our family um also traditional foods so uh there's a i actually bought a cookbook called the sous chef (laughs) s-i-o-u-x and it's written it's it's uh it's written by a man who's lakota and the all the recipes are you know pre-colonial lakota eating so it's like um no fry bread recipes. Okay. So fry bread is a very colonial food. And so I'll try to incorporate like squash, right. Or, uh, corn or any of these three sisters, which is what we call the beans, corns and squash, beans, corn and squash in meals. So all of those things are ways to, to make the day about us and to also make it about being thankful, thankful that our our culture is being rebirthed in young families. So like my grandfather wasn't raised in his culture as much as like what I'm raising my children in. Mm-hmm. He was raised very like white passing or you should be, you know, adapt to this and that instead of reclaim, instead of living his culture. But if you go to my grandfather's house, he has his culture all over his walls he and has for my whole life. So you can tell that it's important to him, but he hasn't had the same access to it in his in his years because of survival, you know. In order to survive, he has had to adapt and become colonized. And so my brother and I 
in our interactions with our grandfather are in some way giving him permission to be indigenous again. And so, uh, so for a holiday like Thanksgiving, which is really controversial and, um, I don't know, not, not rooted in, in very much truth. We have, have decided in our family to make it more about being thankful for each other, more about being thankful for the survival of our culture and for being able to teach our children about it. So that's part of choosing to honor that part of the day instead of this imaginary story about some first feast, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Thank you so much for going into detail about that. I feel like, I mean, not just that it's helpful to get to know you a little bit better, but I think, like you said, for folks maybe who are interested in reclaiming something that's different, right? Hearing just the specifics of how one person goes about that, I think can spark ideas for how other people can go about that with, you know, their own culture. Right. And that was part of the article at the end. What I, what I ended the article with was asking people for my non-Indigenous brothers and sisters who are American to just like cut that whole story scenario out of their Thanksgiving. If that's, if they want to do something that, you know, really honors that the reclamation or making the day a little different as opposed to about this story, just cut the story out, the idea of this feast and make it about being thankful instead mm-hmm. about being thankful for your family and, and each other. Cause there's nothing wrong with having a day to be thankful for things. I think that's a, a really awesome idea in itself. So if we could just X the narrative <laughs> of this, this feast between two people who were really very tense with each other totally out of it would be just this better take on it, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So obviously we've been talking about, you know, that specific piece that you wrote, but I know that you do a lot of other writing too as your, in your work as a journalist. Can you talk about some of the other things that you cover? Yeah. Powwows. I I write for, um, I write for powwows.com. And um, sometimes a lot of what I do recently is like resharing informational articles to our indigenous audience, like so that they have news that's relevant to them, which is really important. But then I also uh, I also write articles on my own. So I cover interviews with indigenous music artists. Um, I go to powwows and talk about the um, the powwows themselves and share my photography um, and then I'm also, I go to this, there's something called Gathering of Nations, which happens every April in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is the largest powwow in North America. And uh, I do the the live, we, we are, powwows.com is the live coverage of the powwow for the rest of the world, basically. <laughs> We've had over 2 million viewers and uh, in every country except for China and North Korea. and. So I do the live interviews, live coverage, commentary kind of thing in between dances. And so, yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff that I cover. I also cover like, I don't know, like major events, like if like with Standing Rock, when Standing Rock happened, trying to get uh, accurate coverage of what's going on to indigenous people. And that's that's important, too, because the narrative that we are hearing from like larger news sources may be different from the narrative that indigenous people want each other to know about, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I do. 
I've been working my way through um, your tribal nations mini lessons that you've been mm. writing about. Yeah, I'm interested what it's been like to do the research for that and something that just popped into my head. I don't know if this is relevant or not, but especially given that you're moving and that, you know, a sense of place is so important. I'm interested in like doing research for that in the land that you're moving to versus the land that you're on. And obviously this idea of the importance of acknowledging, you know, whose land we're on and all of that. I don't know. Is there anything in there that you want to talk about? Yeah. Um, so one thing I, that I did with the mini lessons, I made sure that the sites that I researched the information from were the actual tribal sites. I didn't want to pull from Wikipedia. I wanted to make sure that I went to their tribal nation websites, pulled the information they wanted themselves to be represented as. And then I also happened to know friends. So I had initial, initially I said, you know, recommend which nation you think I should cover on Instagram. And then people were writing me suggestions and it was oftentimes their nation. So then when I was writing about their nation, I would turn to them and say, what do you want me to talk about? What do you want my followers to know about your nation? You know, what issues are you fighting with the government? Uh, What cultures are important to you? What cultural practices are important to you? That kind of thing. Tell me about your regalia, like anything that was specific to that culture, I wanted to make sure I pointed out because that's, you know, one thing that's, one thing that's really missed, I think, is people just kind of assume, I feel, that everything's just this pan, pan Indian culture and that we all wear headdresses and we all, blah, blah, blah. But it's in fact, you know, 572 separate individual cultures with separate languages and cultural practices so when I'm talking about like, you know, a Haudenosaunee nation, or if I'm talking about the Hopi, or if I'm talking about this, the the Gwich'in nation, like all of these different nations are totally different cultures. So that was one thing I really wanted to include in my mini lessons. And I could have talked, I could have written so many story pages about really in-depth stuff that each nation was going through, but they are mini lessons. And I did want to make sure that it held the attention of the followers. Like that's another thing is if I write slides with a whole bunch of information, <laughs> I don't know if people are going to read them. So I wanted to make sure they they caught people's eye, that they were interesting, that it had my voice. And a lot of times I try to make things a little humorous mm-hmm. just so that it was always eye catching to people so that, it, yeah, it was funny, but you were learning something too, you know? So, and then I, I've done research on where we're moving only because my niece and nephew are Malax Band Ojibwe. So I kind of already know a lot about the Ojibwe nation, but I mean, that's important, right? Like where, where I'm moving, I already have connections in the indigenous communities out there, but it's going to be a rebuild really, because I have a lot of connections and relationships um, here in the Bay Area, but in the Bay Area, we're like this conglomeration of multiple cultures And we all just kind of huddled together because we all knew we were indigenous. (laughs) Whereas like if I, when I go out to Minnesota, I'm really, I'm stepping into a tribal nation and a very established tribal nation that is a little more, like a little less diverse, I would say, in just that they are Ojibwe. Or if I go more South, they're Dakota, you know, like um, if I go a little more East, then it's Anishinaabe. So it's like just making sure that, 
that wherever I go, like, yeah, I'm going to be starting over essentially in terms of the the community and the people that I meet. So it will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and obviously you're, you're talking about it through a specific lens and yet I do think that there's something really, again, universal about how challenging it is to find community, to start over, to move, to make friends as an adult, these kind of things that I think sometimes maybe aren't talked about. But yeah, I think that that's really relevant for any kind of relocation. And it sounds like, yeah, that's something that you've definitely thought about. Yeah. And also like making friends as an adult right now is even different, even more different than making friends as an adult 10 years ago for me, because what I value and what I have turned to in my life as is as important to me has shifted in the last 10 years, right? So uh, so now when I make friends, it's a very specific people that I will gravitate towards. Whereas like 10 years ago, pre-Trump era, I would have been maybe more inclined to make friends who had a little more conservative views. I would have been a little more open to having friends with more conservative views. and. I'm finding that for my own emotional protection, I'm kind of distancing myself from relationships like that, um, or I, or I approach the relationships very guarded. So making friends is going to be interesting. And like, I don't know what the climate is necessarily in terms of like the women that I'll meet out there or the men that I'll meet out there. Whereas if I step into an indigenous community, I kind of have a little more idea, right, of who I'm going to be around and maybe what their viewpoints are, but you never know. Yeah. So that that part is interesting too. Like, am I going to find people who who relate to how I feel about things and and then building that trust and finding people I can say, hey, I'm having a really shitty day. You want to go for coffee, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> is going to be interesting. It's going to be different. Yeah. I'm interested to dig a little deeper into what you just said about the change of your values in the last 10 years. Because again, I mean, I think we're always changing and evolving, right? I certainly am. I mean, at the heart of it, yes, we're the same person, right? Some things don't change. But yeah, I have very different beliefs about a lot of things than I did 10 years ago. And you know, the idea of like, you learn better and do better and the things that are important to you change when you're 18 versus 28 versus, you know, on and on and on. So are there any specific things, whether it's like something that you used to value that you don't anymore or something that you used to believe that you don't anymore or something that you need now that you didn't let yourself need when you were younger? I'm curious about more details about that. Yeah. Uh, Well, so let's see, 10 years ago, I was 22. So I was just married 10 years ago. And then I was, I don't know, I was very (laughs) self-involved. I was very concerned about myself and my husband, we were very, we were newlyweds. He was, you know, deployed to Afghanistan. And I was very, my world was three feet, three feet in front of my face. You know, I couldn't really see past that. And I think social media was just barely, you know, barely take, I mean, it was, it was, it was there, but it wasn't what it is today in terms of your reach and meeting people. And so I had a pretty limited viewpoint on stuff at that age because I'm, I'm, I was young. I still am young, but, uh, I was also uh, Mormon. I was a convert to the Mormon church when I was 19. And, uh, so I was, if Mormonism is a spectrum, <laughs> right? So there's liberal Mormonism and then there's like really conservative Mormonism. I was pretty much in the middle, but I was, I was, you know, committed to the church and I was really, you know, 
I was, I was young and had pretty, I would say somewhat conservative viewpoints on like marriage and on relationships and family. And I was like, I, full disclosure, I used to think, you know, you should be married and then have a baby. Whereas now I'm like, shit, I mean, if you, if you love each other, then sure, go ahead and have a baby or have a baby as a single person whatever makes you happy, live your life. Like that's how I feel now. But it took me a while to get here. So yeah, 10 years ago, my viewpoints were very different, but then very slowly and with exposure to other people and other lifestyles, I changed my mind. And I think that that is awesome. Change your mind. If you, if you meet someone and they have this different opinion or this different lifestyle and it triggers something in your mind where you're like, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. I think I'm going to change my mind. Then I think there's this, there's this growth in being able to let go of, oh, I have to feel this way forever and ever. And I'm always going to be held accountable to this feeling I feel in 2009 and I'll be committed to it forever. No, like I'm okay with letting go of that and realizing, Hey, I don't agree with that anymore. And I changed my mind. Yeah. And so, uh, so, <laughs> so I left the Mormon church because I wanted to carry a baby for somebody else, uh, as a surrogate. And the Mormon church was not okay with that. They even, like my bishop flat out told me, if you do this, you'll be in violation of the book of discipline. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I still feel called to do this thing for these, for this couple. And then I'd like to carry a baby for two dads. Oh, that really made them mad. You know, like, so I, so I left my, my, my religion at the time. And so that, and talk about growth, right? Like I went from being like, oh, you have to be married and have a baby to this idea of like, I really want to carry a baby for two dads because that sounds hard as hell waiting to adopt a baby and then having it taken from you and like with this potential of it not working out. And, and yeah, if they, these people want to have a baby with their genetics, sure. Why not? You know? And so anyway, I don't, I kind of veered off. A no, no, bit. no. There's so much good <laughs> stuff in that, that you said this idea. I mean, it sounds so simple and yet I think is really worth repeating that you can change your mind, right? Like it's like, it sounds well, obviously. And yet I think so often we're like, well, you know, I was taught this thing or I believed this thing for, you know, decades. And yeah. it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have to mean that you were, maybe you could have been wrong before or that my, my friend Alex says, like, it's not necessarily that you were lying in the past. It's that your truth has changed, right? Or some right. version of that, that, yeah, you can change your mind. And the example that you just gave is really specific and really honest. And I'm grateful for that because I think that there's just so much growth and evolution that can happen in a beautiful way if we allow it to happen. And I'm so glad that I don't believe all the things that I believed five or 10 years ago. Yeah. You yeah. know? And so, yeah. No I, one is I, I born knowing everything, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. yeah. So it's like giving yourself permission to, like you said, expose yourself to new viewpoints and different stories and other people's lived experiences and you can change your mind. <laughs> yeah, yep. I love that. So you mentioned um, being a surrogate, which is something else that I'm excited to talk to you about, mostly because I don't really know anything about it. I <laughs> don't have kids. I'm not planning to have kids. And yeah, so I'm just, I'm really interested. This might sound silly, but I think it's good always, like you said earlier, that language is important. So for anyone listening who might not be familiar with surrogacy, can you explain it? Yeah. Surrogacy is giving my body essentially for the use of my uterus for a couple who wants to have a genetic child of their own so um, or a single person. So let's say there's, I'll use a 
kind of a heteronormative situation here, like a, a man and a woman who it's determined that she cannot, for whatever reason, carry her own child, but they have embryos for an IVF transfer, then they would put the baby in my tummy. And so I would carry the baby for them and give birth to their child and then give their child back to them. So you mentioned when you were talking about it initially that it felt like a calling for you. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So my daughter was a few months old and was teething and it was a nightmarish night where she was just crying all night and I was exhausted. And and it's this really ugly part of motherhood that nobody likes to talk about. The miserable, you know, all I want to do is sleep kind of motherhood. And um, I was just rocking her one night and crying and she was crying. And then I just had this really humble moment where I was like, you know what? There are people in this world who would give anything to be as miserable as I am right now. And I need to be really thankful for that instead of feeling sorry for myself. And then I had this other notion pop into my head of, you know, I have a healthy body. I'm able to carry a baby. I should do that for somebody else. I can, I can help. So I should. And so at three in the morning, uh, after I got my daughter asleep, I went out into the living room, opened my laptop and started researching surrogacy. And it was borderline obsession, really. Like I couldn't stop researching and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And every time I tried to stop thinking about it, creator kept like putting things in my path to like redirect me back to it. And I always say like, if creator wants to be heard, like there's not going to be a way for me to ignore them. You know, it's going to be it's going to be pretty obvious and it's going to take over my life if I'm ignoring creator and what something creator wants me to do. And that's exactly what happened. I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I talked to my husband and I said, this is what I want to do. And he was like, what? (laughs) And he was totally like, uh, you want to, you want to do what? And, uh, there's not a lot of information out there. Really. There wasn't a lot on the process. There wasn't a lot talking about what to expect. This is what happens first, second, third. And I am someone who likes to know what's coming. So I gave him the information that I had and then I waited. And he came up to me one day and was like, you know, Corinne, I can see that this is really important to you. Let's do it. And so we did. Yeah. There's so much in here that I want to ask you about. The first thing that pops into my mind, and maybe this is sort of a strange place to dive in, but let's just go with it. I'm curious about your experience of doing something that's, I'd say, uncommon, right? Being a a surrogate, I think, is is not a common experience that lots of people have, and yet it's so visibly noticeable. Like At some point, eventually, everyone can see that you are pregnant, which I'd assume means that you have to have explanatory conversations with lots of folks about surrogacy. Oh, God. With everyone. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Can you talk about like what that has been like for you a little bit? Yeah. You know, even the grocery store clerks, like, I mean, cause these people, right. They see me every day. They know I'm pregnant and then, hi, how are you? Oh, your kids are so cute. Uh, and then I'm buying groceries and then I'll see you tomorrow, you know, or whatever. They're seeing me get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then one day they're going to see me not pregnant and also with no baby. So I'm like, here are these strangers that I'm going to have to eventually ex- give some sort of explanation to because I feel like I ne- like I need to do that because that's just who I am. I mean, some people may be like, well, screw them. Like, I'm not going to tell them 
my my business and that's fine. But for me, uh, like I felt this need to tell them. And so I was like, yeah, I'm pregnant. And they're, oh, you're going to have, you know, three. And when I was pregnant with twins, oh, my God, the reactions were like, you're going to have twins. Oh, my gosh, you're never going to sleep. And I was like, well, they're not mine, <laughs> which is like their face after saying, yeah, I'm pregnant, but it's not mine. Their faces are always so funny to me. Like, what? What are you talking about? And so I would really, I would explain to these people, yeah, I'm, I'm a surrogate. I'm carrying a baby for someone else because they can't have a baby. And then the, the reactions were always either like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Or, oh, and then they just like <laughs> didn't want to talk anymore. Or sometimes they were totally inappropriate and they were like, oh my God, how much are you getting paid for that? And I'm oh like, really? God. How much do you make for your job? Like, let's <laughs> talk about your taxes, please. Show me your tax returns. Yeah. <laughs> like, how is that appropriate? <laughs> so yeah, it was, I got some mixed reactions, but once I kind of told the people I, I, I was going to see pretty frequently, that was kind of it. Like if I was somewhere on, like if I was on a bus and someone was like, oh, how far along are you? And I said, you know, oh, I'm 27 weeks or whatever. And I knew I was never going to see that person again. I probably wouldn't spend the emotional labor explaining about it because it takes a while <laughs> to really mm -hmm. go into that with someone. But, but yeah, if I, if I was going to see them, frequently, then yeah, it was worth investing that the one time and then just getting it out of the way. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. even went so far as to have information at the hospital ahead of time, like, hey, like I want all the nurses to know what our situation is because one with my first surrogacy, they didn't know how to handle after the birth. They were like, oh, so you never want to see the baby again, right? And you don't want to talk to the parents. We'll put you on this floor. We'll separate you and yada, yada. And we were all like, no, no, we, I love them. Like I want, I want, we want to be next to each other. And this is not a strange, like, this is not like, we don't need to handle this, like pain, like a, an adoption that would be painful or potentially painful. So it was, it was really interesting writing protocol for the, <laughs> the hospital with the social worker to try to, you know, get them up to speed. Like, okay, this may be how you handle closed adoptions or whatever, but this is not that case. This is how we would like it to be handled. And then you can take this potential situation and I don't know, curriculum or whatever layout and use it for someone else who may come in with a surrogacy situation. Yeah. I mean, cause I would assume for a lot of those folks, maybe you were the first surrogate that they worked with. Yeah, <laughs> I was actually, it was, it was really interesting, but I was glad, you know, that I was able to help them know what to what to do for the next woman who came in as a surrogate. So what are some of the most common questions? I mean, besides the ones that kind of make you roll your eyes that you get asked about being a surrogate, like what's <laughs> what are things that you like to talk about or educate people about or I don't know, stories that you love to share about it? I get at the number one question I get asked the most is, do I feel an attachment to the baby? And you know, is it hard to give the baby up is what I get asked, which is problematic language in itself, I would say, because I'm not giving a baby up. I'm giving their baby back. And so I always correct that first. I'll say, well, actually, I'm not giving a baby up. I'm giving their baby back to them. And so then I, after prefacing it with that, I'll, I'll say, you know, it. I developed a relationship with the parents. So if anything is difficult, it's parting with the parents because we've developed this friendship and this familial relationship 
And so then I know they're going to dive into those first few months of no contact with anyone trying to keep babies alive, you know? So (laughs) it was, that's the hard part is having someone that I talk to constantly every day about this upcoming delivery and then them being a family and stepping away and that that's part of the process. And uh, so, yeah, giving the child is never the hard part because I've worked for that moment for so long and the mindset going in is serving others and serving this, this, these people who want to be a family. So when that moment comes, it's not sad. It's, I was anticipating it and I was Mm -hmm. excited for it. Yeah, absolutely. And then it becomes a joyful thing. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned doing kind of as much research as you could at the beginning, but obviously you can only research so much. So I'm curious, what was most surprising for you the first time around as a surrogate? I think the most surprising thing um, about my first surrogacy and uh, the research was really that there wasn't a lot of information out there for someone who wanted to know what the process was. And so I kind of went into the surrogacy journey, I don't I wouldn't say blind, but with very minimal information on what to expect emotionally, what to expect in terms of doctor appointments. And so I started a blog and I started it in 2014 and I maintain it today. And I, I talk about this is what happens first, second, third, fourth, because if somebody out there wants to do surrogacy and they're like me, where they like to know what's coming, they would just have to go to my blog and read, you know, what several different journeys for me were were like. And uh, so I think it was surprising for me that I was willing to, it was surprising in myself that I was willing to really be that transparent in my journey for other people. So there, there I am again, really just wanting to educate and to help other people because I knew that that's what I would have wanted is like something to read that tells me exactly what to expect. Yeah. I think about this a lot. I mean, obviously the through line of basically all of these episodes and my mission with this show is this idea of having honest conversations and, you know, honesty can exist alongside privacy, right? And people don't mm-hmm. have to share every single thing about their lives, right? I certainly don't believe that. But I do think that what you're, I mean, what you're saying resonates with me a lot, this idea that honesty about our own lived experiences is really a gift because, you know, however much we're, again, willing to share, and I think that honesty can be valuable even while privacy is still maintained. People don't, you know, deserve access to every single thought or feeling or, right, that we yeah. experience we've ever had. But that the ability, like you said, for someone maybe who's interested, you know, maybe is considering surrogacy to have a resource like your blog to go to of, okay, maybe this won't be exactly what my experience is like, but here's the truth of what this experience was like for someone, right? And I just think that there can be something really helpful and comforting about that and can just, it just like helps folks feel less alone. Oh yeah, for sure. And, And then on top of that also, I've had five different women who have gone on to become surrogates themselves because of following my journey. So that was like this, this is this, you know, bonus, right? Saying like, oh, because I was willing to be transparent about my story. Now other women have decided that they wanted to do this also, and they're changing lives because of that. And so that's really touching for me to hear about. Yeah, I also think that it's easy, especially when we talk about like social media or reach or platform size, to think that in order for something to be impactful, that it has to be reaching thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, right? And yet talking about making, right, when you just said that five 
women have done this, right? And that has had impacts for five different families or intended parents, or I obviously don't know their situation, but there is like, it's on one hand, I feel like it'd be easy to be like, oh, it's just five people, but that's, I mean, that's five people, right? That's five different situations where like lives were changed for the better because of this thing. And I think it's sometimes easy to overlook the impact of kind of person to person thing or one person at a time situations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, how open and transparent you are on your blog. And one topic that I know that you've written and shared about with that kind of honesty is about miscarriage. I've heard you talk about it both as a surrogate and otherwise. And obviously I know it's an emotional topic. So of course, only share what you feel comfortable sharing. But I'm curious to ask what it's like for you to have a miscarriage when there are other people involved, the intended Mm -hmm. parents, I mean, like, what is that like emotionally when it's not, you're not processing it just for you? Like, how do you care for yourself through that? I would imagine that you also are sort of caring for them. I don't know. I mean, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but um, that struck me as something that I hadn't considered. And so um, I'd be grateful for anything you wanted to share about that. Yeah. um, So, and I'm totally willing to talk about it also. It was so different miscarrying a child that was not my own. But then it was also very much the same. It was physically the same. Okay. So there was, there was the death of the child that I was carrying. And then there was the physical delivery, which is like, you never hear about that part of it, right? You hear someone miscarries and you think, oh, it's just, it's just bleeding again. Right. But it is you like, you pass, you pass matter. Like you pass a a little tiny thing. Like it's, it is slightly traumatic really, if we're being honest. And so I had that happen with my miscarriage back in 2009. And then I also had that with the miscarriage of this surrogate baby who we lovingly called Thumper because its little heartbeat was going thump, thump, thump in the ultrasound. And he, uh, I passed him in the shower and then my husband helped take the 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 baby for me from the shower. And it was, I was grieving. Like I sat in the shower crying because not because I was like, Oh, I'm missing this child, but because I was like, Oh fuck, I was so close to helping this family and the tears were for them. So the tears were for, for their pain because I feel, I felt almost like I failed them mm-hmm. in a way. Like I really wanted so badly for them to have this happy ending. I loved them so much. The, the, the mother, she and I were really like, we still keep in touch. Like she's just a close friend and the father was just, they were devastated. And so I was just like, man, like I wanted to be that, help them in that happy ending and it didn't happen. And then it was just this glimpse into the pain that was their reality for so long. So for them, they were like, you know, they were devastated, but they also were prepared that that would be a possibility. And for me, I was like, totally like, oh, I'm going to be their saving grace. Everything's going to be fine. Like, yada, yada, yada. Everything's going to work out. Don't worry. And then it didn't. And so I was really just totally crushed for them. And so I had people reaching out to me being like, Corinne, are you okay? And do you need a grief counselor? And I'm like, what? No, I'm fine. Like, I'm not upset because I'm I lost a child. Like it was different in the emotional sense. I'm upset for them. So I was always reaching out to them like, what can I do? What can I help you with? And I'm so sorry. And they were in turn reaching out to me like, I'm so sorry you're going through this physical pain and loss on our behalf. And so we were 
both sorry at each other. <laughs> so like the mother was like devastated for me and wanting to do things to help me be comfortable. And I was devastated for her and wanting to do things to help her emotionally. So it was very, very different from the loss aspect, from the emotional aspect. But if, yeah, so that part was really interesting. Yeah, that's all I think I have on that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, and I think one of the things that I most appreciate about honest conversations is that it brings to light that not everything can be tied up in a neat bow. Do you know what I mean? Like, like what you just shared. I mean, that's, yeah, it sounds like a lot of grief for multiple people involved. And, you know, like you said, slightly or more than slightly traumatic and that it's okay, this thing happened. And then what, right? Like we like when this story is, using, you know, the surrogacy example, like, and then I gave them this baby. And like you said, the happily ever after, right? I'm sure that that feels wonderful for everyone involved. And also like everything else in life, that's not always what happens. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. things don't work out. Sometimes things aren't okay. Sometimes we go through enormous amounts of pain and grief and loss, both for ourselves and on behalf of other people. And there's just something in that that's like, you know, I I don't have any answers or like any wisdom. And I don't think that you are necessarily are saying that you do either, but it's like, that's, yeah, sometimes things don't work out. Yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. true. And I think it was difficult too, because like I had been successful delivering three babies for other people. And then I was like, had this, all this confidence. Right. And then it just knocked the wind out of me. Right. I was like, Oh, well now I don't know what to say. Now I don't know what to do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm still waiting for that happy ending. So I'll just wait with your listeners, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, that brings up my next question. Is surrogacy something that you see as part of your continued future? Yeah, it is. I was uh, I was in a match uh, for a gentleman who was the, uh, the godfather for the first baby I carried, so I knew him for a while. Uh, but for whatever reason, the embryo transfer didn't work out, and that was November, or yeah, November. And then, uh, so then we decided to end the match. And then now I'm waiting for another couple. So I'm just kind of waiting for there to be someone who goes to my agency and says, oh, you know, Corinne's profile looks really great. We'd love to meet her. And then we, it's like this awkward dating. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. Uh, will you carry my baby? It's like, Hi, nice to meet you. Can I carry your baby? You know, it's in a very, uh, not exactly that way, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Like we get to know each other with this high stakes of, am I going to carry a child for you? <laughs> so yeah, the, uh, the Tinder of babies, <laughs> right? Exactly. That's what it is. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> Before we move on to a different subject, is there anything else, um, under, I know that there's probably lots of different <laughs> topics or discussions under the conversation, the umbrella of surrogacy, but is there anything that you haven't gotten to share yet that you wanted to share? Um, I would just say that having thinking about surrogacy and what it's done for my life and my family, I get another question I get is how, how has it affected my life and my family's life choosing to do this? Cause I have kids and they see me going through a pregnancy twice, you know, delivering a baby and then delivering twins, but we don't bring the kids home. So I have people who ask, you know, how has that affected your family and your kids? And I would say that just, deciding to do surrogacy was the greatest decision of my life because my children are older now, but they remember what mommy did. And they remember me talking about, oh, I'm carrying 
you know, my IP is babies for them because they, they can't have a baby without mommy. And so I'm going to help them and then give the baby back and not realizing what specifically is sitting with that information in a small child. Like, I don't know what they're grasping exactly, but I'm explaining it in this very child friendly way. And as they're getting older, hearing them talk to their friends or their teacher or somebody about this idea that their mom is going to carry a baby for someone. And they're telling people with pride and they're telling people with this like admiration and like, Oh, look at my mommy's doing this. My mommy's carrying a baby for someone. And then it's just this really amazing feeling. Cause I'm like, you know what? I hope that they're learning that sacrifice for someone else is sacred, that the choice to do something for, you know, another person and to sacrifice that for them is, is an act of being sacred and using, uh, my time on earth for someone else in a good way. And hearing my children talk about it to other people is affirming that like, Oh, they're, it's something is resonating with them and they're, they're feeling good about what I've chosen to be part of our family's path. So that, that always, that was cool. And I just wanted to share that part. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. I also think, you know, this idea of being in service to each other, obviously you've chosen one, I mean, I'm sure many, but this, we're talking about one specific way of doing that and that there's lots of different ways. It doesn't have to look the same for everyone, right? But that this idea, you know, maybe this isn't your, you know, path that your children take or, you know, that someone that they tell takes, but that the underlying message of that, I feel like comes through really strongly. Yeah, for sure. Um, so pivoting really into the last topic that I wanted to ask you about, you recently founded a nonprofit organization, yeah? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Tell me tell me all about that. <laughs> the Buffalo Project. Yeah, Buffalo is an acronym and it stands for Brothers United for Feeling and Leading Openness. And um it started as this uh it's a it was a Changemaker Initiative project in partnership with Ashoka. And um, Ashoka is a social entrepreneurship company in the United States, well, nat- nation- nationwide, really. And they basically came to uh, the church that I was attending, the Los Altos United Methodist Church, and they said, Hey, we're partnering with your- we're the church in this organization. We're partnering together to come up with new and innovative ways to create social change for issues that were, you know, pretty wide and within the family, within community, within church, within wherever. It didn't need to be about church. It was just, here's a community, a fiscal sponsor. Now let's go make some change. Right. And, uh, so a couple months before I even knew about this change maker initiative, I was a resource teacher, well, resource uh, aid, uh, at an elementary school, I worked with small children who had IEPs on their reading and math goals. And I was at some training, it was really boring training. And I had this, I, there's no other way to describe it. There's, I had this vision pop into my head of myself wearing, you know, some traditional regalia, like a, a, a ribbon skirt. And I was in this portable office, like a portable And I was talking to a room full of white men dressed in like Carhartt jackets and stuff. And I was standing in front of this room talking about human trafficking in this vision that I had. And it was very strange to me because I was not in that line of work at all. 
I worked with small kids. I was not an expert on human trafficking at all, but I was aware of how human trafficking was affecting my indigenous community. Because we have this issue of missing and murdered indigenous women, which is this huge, huge problem, which stems from men who take advantage of women, indigenous women, because they're so marginalized, you know, like out on these, out on the reservations and then they're trafficked or they're murdered or we never hear from them again. And so I knew that that was a a greater issue, but this vision made no sense to me. And so I just kind of tucked it away. And then when I was sitting there and they were announcing that this was going to happen and they wanted to hire 26 fellows to create, to create their own fellowship journeys, I was covered in goosebumps. Like I was just like, Oh my God, this is it. This is what I need to be doing. And it has to do with that vision that I had. And I felt like I wanted to just jump up out of my seat and run. It was this rush of adrenaline and it was unlike anything I'd ever felt. And maybe it would be, I would say it's similar to how I felt when I needed to go research surrogacy, that calling feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, okay, it needs to be about human trafficking, but what is the root of human trafficking? Like what is, if I just help women who've been trafficked, that's not going to fix the problem. I want to fix the problem. And so I started to go deeper and delve deeper into, you know, what if I decided to attack the demand for human trafficking? Let's go at this from a business aspect, right? Let's attack the demand so that they don't even, they don't even have a chance if there's no demand for human trafficking. What would that, what would that be? And that would be if we had a nation full of emotionally healthy men who had access and tools to dealing with their own emotions, they're not going to be turning towards, you know, human traffic, women who've been trafficked, right? So we have like, here's an example. We have man camps out in the oil fields in South Dakota, which are right next to the reservations. Women have been missing off of the reservations and they're being trafficked into these man camps and forced into prostitution. And it's, it's horrible. And I mean, and that's not even the extent of it. I mean, women are being trafficked from Canada down across Lake Erie into, maybe I'm not quite right on the lake, the the lake from Ontario, they're being, um, they're being shipped on shipping containers in the boats to the United States to be trafficked. Like this is a huge problem for indigenous women. So I was like, if we can help create men who have healthy emotional mindsets and can access their own emotions and deal with things, then they're not going to be as prone to violence against women. They're not going to be turning to women who've been trafficked. And maybe we can arm them to stand up together when they see something that's not okay, right? If I can work with men in the man camps, because not all of them are bad, right? We have good fathers and husbands who just want to make a check and go home to their families. But maybe they see something in the camps and they don't feel comfortable saying something. So if we can arm them with tools on how to band together and what to do when you see something, then I can give good men tools and opportunities to stand up and, and say, hey, that's not okay. That's I don't agree with that. So that's really what we are and what we do. We're workshops led by men for men, arming them with these with these tools and these and these ways to process things. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in reading more about, and I know this is a new project, but reading more about it, one of the things that struck me was, you know, you say, or it says on the website about the goal of seeking to reduce human trafficking and violence against women, like you said, through empowering men, but empowering men to embrace healthy emotional behavior through indigenous values. And I'd love yeah. more detail on what you mean when you say indigenous values, because I know that this is uh, the work that you're doing isn't just, it's not aimed necessarily at indigenous men. Right. Yeah. So what that means is, uh, so traditionally, like in my Lakota culture, men are balanced. Okay. So if there's a, if, if we're talking about a balance, it's feminine or femme energy and masculine energy. And if there is a lack of the feminine, then a man is imbalanced. Okay. And there's, there's a story about the white Buffalo calf woman uh, which is a, it's a sacred story about how this white Buffalo calf woman appears to a young boy. And she says that she's going to be bringing knowledge and to go tell, you know, go tell the elders and the people in the village like, that she's coming. And he does, and no one believes him. And, uh, the white Buffalo calf woman appears as a white Buffalo calf to the people and brings knowledge and this sacred pipe. And really what she was doing is restoring balance. Okay. She was restoring the feminine energy to the people who we have become imbalanced in this story. And so the pipe is kept and it is still kept today. And it's very safe. It's this very sacred pipe that represents a balance and knowledge of the people. And so I wanted to incorporate that, or I guess I would say give a nod to it without claiming to be that story, I guess you would say. So it was very important to me to not try to claim, oh, we're the Buffalo's project because of this story, but to those who know the story, get why the two are tied, I guess you would say. But so the idea is to to help these men see that balance is traditional, that accepting both, and not even just in Native American pre-colonial indigenous ways, but also in like traditional Norwegian, pre-colonial Norwegian ways, like the Sami people or like Vikings, okay, fought alongside warrior women. Like this, this is, this is not a new idea that men would be working alongside women and in balance with women and be balanced themselves. So that's really what it's about. It's bringing indigenous teachings of every culture uh, into the workshops to help fortify this idea of this is not just a new idea. This has been your ancestors' way of life forever mm-hmm. as a way of like empowering them to be feeling empowered and sharing their emotions and to accepting that balance will will not just be a new thing, that it's a thing that honors their ancestors. Yeah, and sort of interrogating the modern approach to masculinity. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But but it's like I feel like when I listen to some of the TED talks about masculinity and and how they need to reach their emotions, I did feel like there was this lack of like they needed to be a little more rooted or grounded in that idea, which was why I felt it was important to incorporate that so many indigenous cultures pre-colonial indigenous cultures, uh, before being told they need to change their ways, really embraced this idea of duality and really embraced this idea of what it means to be a gender, right? And I mean, there are so many cultures who have different views on what gender is and multiple genders and everything. And, and I feel like 
this idea of colonialism or, or to define that telling people, you know, you should be this way or you're wrong, uh, erases that and the importance of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you, what are your, I don't know if goals is the right word, but goals or hopes, um, for 2019 with the Buffalo project. So our hopes is, uh, that we would be in non-indigenous spaces. So like tech industry, I would love if we can run some of our workshops in places like Google or Apple um, or like we have a, a meeting with a finance firm in San Francisco coming up, just which could potentially lead to the workshop being in their company. So I really would like to see just the stepping out a little bit. Yeah, we have a we have a really awesome instructor and he is very experienced with working in uh in deconstructing masculinity and in hosting small groups and large groups. Um, also, sir, he served on some several panels discussing about masculinity. So we're just really prepared and really confident to actually be running, hopefully in some large, large industries, large companies, and then eventually out in places. I would like to see us out in oil fields uh, because I feel like those men need us the most. What do you need? How can people support you? Uh, right now, we are totally reliant on uh, funding from donors. So um, that would be a huge help. We have a grant writer. Uh, however, our we're still going through a fiscal sponsor, and we haven't gained our 501c3 status yet. So at the moment, we're kind of limited on the grants that we apply for. So really, it's funding. Um, or if you have a company that would be interested in hosting our workshop or talking with us to find out a little bit more about what we're doing, um, that would be helpful too. I also travel to speak in different places that work with human trafficking prevention to try to let everyone know what we're doing. Because um, I think that it's important to be in communication with each other in terms of fighting human trafficking to know what everyone is doing and that builds each other up. Because there's a lot of burnout working in human trafficking prevention. and uh, I can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when you hear this is what someone else is doing and it's new and this is what we're, this is, this is what we're embarking on, it kind of uh, re-energizes. So, uh, so yeah, so I travel and talk to places. So if, you, if people are listening and they're like, oh, I would really love to have Corinne come talk about what she's doing, then I definitely, I do that as well, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of traveling, um, at the time of this recording, we're a few weeks from the Indigenous Peoples March in D.C. I think I saw that you were going to that, right? I am, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything in that that you wanted to talk about? Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to cover uh, provide coverage for powwows.com, so I'll be doing live live feed of the march and then also uh, live interviews of people marching, asking them why they're there. Um, so I'm going really from a journalistic point as opposed to like participatory. <laughs> so, it. um, yeah, so I'm going there to really cover what it is, what's happening. I'm not really, I don't know a lot of the people who are running the March. So I'm, I'm going in with this, the idea of being a journalist, being there to cover whatever happens. So it will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see and to, to meet new people in the hopefully grow and network and make more relationships there with other indigenous people on the East coast. 
Yeah. And by the time that this episode comes out, that will have already happened. So it's good to know that the reporting and stuff that you're doing, I assume, will probably be up on the site around then. Yes, it will be. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. So folks can check that out. The last thing that I want to ask, and I I mean, I know that this is a big question, so just any way that you want to answer it would be awesome. What would you say to people who want to act in allyship for Native communities? Oh, um, I think the biggest thing is to amplify, uh, amplify voices that are talking and people that are, have already been speaking on issues. Um, I've been asked this before because people want to do something and they want to help and they want to bring change or be a good ally. And really the best thing that you can do is to say, I support this person now listen to them. And then to really like raise our voice to be a little bit louder. I think that would be the best way to be an ally. And then also like if you, once you become educated on something, it's your, your, it's now your responsibility to, to, to carry that knowledge. So you, now someone will know it's really not okay to buy imitation native stuff. Instead, they should buy from native designers. So now that knowledge is your responsibility. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with it? And I think that being a good ally means always having that in the back of your mind when you come across that situation. Are you going to think about my words? Are you going to, you know, is that going to resonate in you in some way? Um, being a good ally would be taking at least a few moments to think about what I said and then weighing your decision against against that knowledge. Yeah. I I mean, this goes back so much to what you were saying about um, your own changing values and this idea that you can change your mind or make different different decisions of like, once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? Once you've heard something, you can't unhear it. And that I, I think that's so beautiful and powerful what you said about that knowledge becomes your responsibility. Yeah. Mm, That's so well said. So the way that we wrap up these episodes, because I think that's a good place for us to start wrapping up, um, is with a series of community questions. So essentially, the Patreon community, the folks that helped to fund the show, um, pick this. It's nine questions. Yeah, it's nine questions this time around. So basically, all eight guests of this season will be answering nine totally random questions if you're down to answer nine random questions. Yeah, absolutely. The first one, what's something that you've gotten better at over the past year? Huh. I've gotten better at voicing when I disagree. Usually, or like before in the past, I will, uh, if I disagreed with something, I would just kind of keep it to myself, especially with family. Um, but in the last year, I've, <laughs> I don't know if it's growing older or what, but I, I've become a little less worried about how how my disagreement will upset and a little more worried about the risk, the, the example I'm showing my children by tolerating something. So if I, if I disagree, I will respectfully voice that if, you know, in this, whatever situation it is. So, um, I'm getting a little more confident with that. Yeah, I I would say that I definitely agree with that. I am as well, which certainly doesn't mean that I don't have far to go with it, but this idea that I'm holding onto of like, truth and justice being more important than not rocking the boat is something that I think about a lot. Right. So the next question, what's one thing that you have found challenging lately? It can be a big thing, a small thing, but something that you've been struggling with. Something that I've been struggling with. Finding time for me. (laughs) I think that I get really busy and a lot of things that I'm doing take a lot of, uh, a lot of time and a lot of energy. And so I'm, I'm really struggling with making sure that I self-care 
Uh, so yeah, that's a big one. Mm-hmm. What's one thing that you love to splurge on when you can? Oh, beadwork. <laughs> I don't know what I thought you were going to say, but it certainly wasn't that. Tell me more. Uh, yeah, jewelry, like uh, uh, beadwork earrings or a medall- like medallion, like regalia, I guess you would say. So like uh, in some of my pictures, I'm wearing like these big beaded earrings or like painted parflesh earrings. And it's like, those are expensive because people put a lot of hard work into them. But oh man, I will splurge on a good ribbon skirt or like a good pair of moccasins. Like I will splurge on that. <laughs> um, I was just going to say for new folks who go to follow you on Instagram, your earring game is really strong. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, now people know where all my photography money goes back <laughs> into beadwork. <laughs> Tell me about a time and it can again, be something big or small when you failed at something. Oh, when I failed at something. Oh, um, yeah, big failure on my part. I started that I tried to do this photography series called the American Police Officer Project. I don't know what I was. I, I was like, <laughs> my dad's a police officer, but he's like really like he's Mister Black Lives Matter, like making sure people follow the rules, kind of police officer. Totally like, I don't know. So he's. I really wanted people to know that there were officers out there who were like gonna gonna call out other rotten officers when they when they f up, right? So I was like really protective of my father and his job as an officer, and so I was like, I'm gonna do this American police officer thing, which is a, a portrait series that covers photos of like portraits of police officers from all over and talk about the very human side of these officers. And it was okay. It was fine. The pictures were really nice and the people were great. However, it failed. <laughs> it failed because there were a lot of officers who didn't want to participate. And then it also failed because <laughs> one of the police agencies I won't name, or two of the police agencies I won't name who they are, stole my idea and decided to run it as a way to get people to come try to apply for their police force, I guess. I don't know. I was just really upset. And so the project never went anywhere. And I just said, screw it. And I, I tossed it. (laughs) When you feel stuck, maybe in working towards a goal or just in your life in general, what's one thing that you can rely on to help you get out of that place of feeling stuck or in a rut? My mother, um, there in the beginning of the Buffalo project, I, was uh, getting people for my advisory committee. And I asked my grandfather if he would be on my advisory committee. And he said no. (laughs) But he said no, because he doesn't like being, he doesn't like public speaking or being a part of like where people would look at him while he's talking. He's very shy. So I get why he said no. And I love him for it. But at the same time, I like, I was like, oh my gosh, my own grandfather won't even be on my advisory committee. Maybe, maybe I'm like, my aspirations are too high and I, maybe I should just quit. And I called my mom and she was like, no, don't quit. Like you got to keep going. Like just because your grand, you know, your grandfather, you know, talk to creator and things will get put in your path in a good time in a good way, in a good way. And, and she was right. Cause things eventually worked. And I found people from my advisory committee who were totally meant to be there and, uh, yeah, so I, I would say that without my mom, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> yeah. What's one thing that feels really important to you right now? Maybe a goal or intention that you've set or just something that you're spending time and energy on? I would say 
and this, my Buffalo project falls under this, but a goal right now is like making sure that anytime I gain a platform to speak that, that I do it in a way that uplifts others and, uh, can bring healing to other people. I think that's really important for me. And a goal is to always make sure that what I'm doing and what I'm saying will uh, bring words of healing to other people, even if their words are acting like they want to fight me on it, that instead that I can just uh, honor that, honor their emotions and, and choose to choose to uplift them anyway. Mm, It's beautiful. The next question is about books, which I don't know, two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Okay. Well, uh, the I would say that my guilty pleasure reading is Robin Carr's Virgin River series. <laughs> and it's, it's a romance series. And it's like, it's just totally guilty pleasure, like all like throw everything out the window in terms of activism. Like this is just like Corinne needs a good book to curl up and read in front of the fire. Like that's what I go to. And I have, there's like 18 books in the series and I read it. It's really great. But in terms of other things that I like, um, the book modern her story. Oh, I got that for Christmas this year. And I haven't like, I just love talking about people's individual stories on life and life life experiences like that book was great have you heard of that um i have not but i'm definitely going to check it out yeah it's called modern her story and it's got stories of women and non-binary people rewriting their history from their their version their like their eyes and Mm. it's really great that sounds incredible i will definitely add that to my list also um i'm a big romance and erotica reader too so i've put a star next to this virgin over series clearly you just gave me two recommendations that i really need so thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. The last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Hmm. I would say I would want one takeaway to be uh, an ask that regardless of how big or how small it is, think of one way you can give to someone else, uh, either of yourself or in a sacrifice way, right? Not expecting anything back. What's one thing you could do for someone else, no matter how big or how small, that will it will make a difference. Whether you see the result of that or not, it's going to do something and it'll ripple out in a good way, I think. Um, and then I would ask in terms of a takeaway from listening, um, I would just say that I would hope that you at least keep the words that I've said in your mind in the future. Like when you're doing something, maybe you want to lift someone up and you want to give them a louder voice, or maybe you're at a store and you want to buy something and you want to support an indigenous artist or designer or whatever, that maybe my words will come in your mind in the, in the, in the the background of your, of your thoughts and, and, and that you'll, that you'll act on, act on that. And that would make, that would just be worth it for me (laughs) knowing that someone did that. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah, I would say, uh, Instagram. Uh, I'm really active. Like if people send me a message, I write everybody back unless you're like a creepy guy who's like (laughs) trying to hit on me, then I'm probably going to block you. But if people are talking, like people want to write, I always respond or write something back. Um, and I'm on Instagram at 
uh, Miss Corinne 86 is my Instagram name. And I'm really active on that. And I do a lot of my stories. If you want to follow my ridiculous children or my activism or just our funny family, like I post a lot on my stories. Yeah. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And also just, um, say too that you have some really great stuff pinned in your story highlights also for people um, to take a look at as well. And yes, as uh, also to underscore that you do respond to your your DMs. That's how you and I, <laughs> that's how you end up on the show is that I message you on Instagram. So yeah, that's right. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Nicole. How are you? I am so excited to ask you some fun little rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I'm ready. Let's go it. All right. My favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Ooh, good question. Um, I just started attempting ceramics. And um, one of my roommates and I have started a pottery class at PC at a local community college, and we're learning wheel. And I am unbelievably terrible at it. I've heard that in general, people are awful when you first start ceramics, but it's been like, I think I'm like especially terrible, but it's been a really good practice of like learning how to be excited about things that you're bad about. I love that so much. I also have been thinking more myself about wanting some like hands-on, non-internet, like non-technology related hobbies, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something about, totally. you know, I have no experience with ceramics or pottery or anything like that, but it's like similar to the reasons that I like cooking and baking. It's like off, you know, it's like yeah. very different. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Um, what's one thing that you have been awesome at lately? Go ahead and brag a little bit. Oh man. Okay. One thing that I've been awesome at lately um I wasn't doing the best job of like um consistently reading towards the end of the year and I've done a lot better this year I think last week I read like five books I mean they're all fiction like relatively short but it like kick-started my like okay now I'm getting back into like going to the library and like getting all my books and so yeah I love that. that. I also love the library. My library lets me check out directly to my Kindle, which has been like the best thing. Oh, so convenient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your go-to song when you need a mood boost? Oh, that's a good question. What is my... I... I guess right now in this very moment, it's Wow by Post Malone. (laughs) Nice question. (laughs) I love hearing people's answers to this question because it gives me like (laughs) ideas for new things to look up and like listen to. (laughs) So good. Um, What's one goal that you're working toward right now? Ooh, I am. I'm floating the idea of. I don't know if this is direct answer to the question, but I'm floating the idea of moving to New York or at least like exploring a different city. I've been in, I live in Portland, Oregon, and I've been there for a while. I went to school uh, in Eugene, which is just a little bit south of here. And I feel like I want to move to like, to a bigger city to get an experience of like living somewhere where I'd be 
I don't know. I wouldn't know as many people and there's a lot more things to do. And like, I guess a lot more stressors. And I feel like you would learn a lot about yourself by moving, like, you know, just doing something that's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. I, I grew up in New York. So if you ever want to talk New York, <laughs> send me an email. I'm happy to do that. Um, that's okay, exciting. I've moved a ton. So I am always like a big fan of what you can learn, right. By like being in a different like geographic space and a different culture and different people. And yeah, that's awesome and exciting. Uh, last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? That's a good question. And I feel like in the past when like I've had various discussions with like you and other people like um sex and money is something that like (laughs) always seems to come up um but I also wish that people were sorry I was going one way with this question and then I was like oh wait I wish that people were a little bit more open and honest about mental health and different issues that they're struggling with um I don't know I just feel like it's odd because we're kind of like in this area where like it's it's sure it is a lot easier to talk about certain things and there's just like more awareness about okay like different people are struggling with different things but I still feel like there's still like a major stigma and sometimes like when you bring things up if you're like oh you just have like regular everyday anxiety then like oh okay everyone's comfortable with discussing that but like once you get into the realm of like oh well someone's having panic attacks like people just completely like shift and they're like space clouds over and they're like okay well this is like past the like realm of like what I can handle. And so they like kind of just like shut down. And I wish that we had an environment where like people were able to talk about like all varieties of things within the mental health spectrum without other people like shutting down and getting uncomfortable with like, Oh, I don't want to take your baggage on. Yeah. Um, Uh I I think that's incredibly well said. I also feel like I wish it was, I guess, easier to be more open and honest in like real time when things are going on. I think people are a lot more receptive to, you know, last year or six months ago, right? Like like you talking about having had a hard time once you're like more functional and out of it. But I feel like a lot of the freezing. Exactly. Exactly. But a lot of the like freezing up or not really being able to handle it, it comes when like, what do you do when it's happening like right now? Um, Yeah. Totally. True. That's a really good point. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season and paying the guests, which I am super grateful for. And I would love for you to share two things. The first, um, why you decided to support the show. And then the one thing that you love most about being in our community or the bonuses or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've been following you before, since before you started your podcast. And I was really excited to be able to support your podcast. Like one, just because I really respect you and the kind of work that you're creating. And you say it very beautifully in your podcast about like what this pledge means about like the fact that giving this money to this podcast is supporting um, voices of different like of a variety of folks and also like marginalized communities, because like you make a point to seek to have a diverse um, cast of folks come in. And also like, um, yeah, sorry. I phrased that kind of odd, but um, so that's one reason. And I also really love the, your notes of grit and grace. You're a, I don't know, you just, you're a wonderful human and a wonderful um, writer, and I wanted to be able to support you because I feel like the work that you're doing just 
sends like this nice positive like ripple out into the world. And I know that um, this podcast is really beneficial for a lot of people because like one, I listen to your outros and two, like you highlight like wonderful humans and like bring people that I would have probably not have been able to find on my own into my life, which has been really nice. And my favorite part of this community, I think, would be, well, one, I do love your your writing, but I also, I've been to two of your um, live events, and they have been absolutely wonderful. And someone from, so Caitlin, another Caitlin, um, I met her at the first Real Talk radio live event that I went to, and then now we work at the same co-working space, and like, now she has her own podcast shout out to Roots of Lore. And like, it's just been like a nice way to meet people. And yeah, I just appreciate the work that you do. Yeah, that's really meaningful for me to hear. And it's been such a treat to have you at that. Those both those live events were so much fun. And when I heard that you and uh, you and other Caitlin, hi, shout out to <laughs> Caitlin one and Caitlin two, um, were working at the same co working space. And like my secret dream with all the live events and retreats is that like people become best friends. And so like when like some version of that actually happens, I feel like super delighted. So I love that you shared that. Um, okay. Do you and so obviously you already mentioned um, that you live in Portland, but do you want to share like a social media link or something in case people want to say hi? Sure. Um, I'm not, I don't have a ton of content on my Instagram, um, but my Instagram is at that's what Katie said and that's in what do not have vowels and Katie is K-A-T-I-E. S-A-I-D. Yeah, I love it. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me. And it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 